Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 389 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Michael Bond speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about his enduring fascination with observing the ways in which we're influenced by our social and physical surroundings, the joys of fandom, and the art of navigation, both outdoors and on the page. Michael Bond is an award-winning non-fiction writer of books about human psychology and behaviour. Formerly a senior editor at New Scientist, he's been writing, editing and consulting on science and development for 20 years, specialising in social behaviour in a whole range of environments, from terrorist groups and explorer teams to communities and organisations. He is particularly interested in how we're influenced by our social and physical surroundings, how the people we're with and the places we know affect what we do and think. This preoccupation has also led him to travel widely to investigate the effect of different locations. And indeed, along with his two works of popular psychology, he has also written a work of travel biography about the settling of the Canadian prairies in the 19th century, centred on an illustrious ancestor of his. For his own physical surroundings, he's chosen a cottage on a farm in rural Hampshire, and this is the location for our Writers Aloud interview. Michael, so here we are in rural Hampshire, not far, in fact, from Jane Austen country. How would you say your writing's influenced by your social and physical surroundings, your, your own surroundings? And uh, why have you chosen to settle in this place? Is it its particular sort of feel and influence? Well, it's a family place. So I'm on a farm that my grandmother used to own, and it's still owned by my family. And I have uh, three siblings, and they all live within a few miles of here. So it feels quite secure, and I grew up very close to here. So close to my roots. Um, it's also very quiet, which is, is perfect. for. I prefer to write where there's no one around and in the countryside. So it's pretty ideal, really, for mm. my... yeah what I'm trying to do. So very grounded here. And, and if you heard little noise then, it was, uh, it was, was Cecil the cat jumping off the table, um, deciding that what we were doing was quite boring. Yeah. So you're in this interest in human psychology. How did that develop? Can you trace it right back? So I studied science at Durham University, um, but I didn't specialise in, in behaviour. I actually think I chose the wrong subject. I chose earth sciences and geology, which meant that I spent a lot of time uh, not being with people out on field courses, collecting rocks. And But when I left, I just became a lot more interested in how people behave. So I started to uh, read a lot and I went straight into journalism and started to specialise in, in science and, and, and then behaviour. And of course, not having the academic background, it meant that I had to do a lot of learning. So I spent a lot of time with, with psychologists, with academics, and that became my, my specialism. So there was no big eureka moment. It was more just uh, a realisation that this was an exciting subject. 
Well, so I first came across your work when I read your book, Wayfinding, the art and science of how we find and lose our way, which is about the psychology of getting lost. And it contains some fascinating neuroscience about how our brains make cognitive maps that tell us where we are and why some people are so much better at navigating than others. I, I did find your, your, your cottage in the country quite successfully or needed a few extra directions at the end. But one of the things that I like about it is that it's not purely a scientific book, is it? Tell us about that subtitle, The Art and Science of How We Find and Lose Our Way. Yes, so in, in researching this book, I spent a lot of time with neuroscientists finding out how the brain allows us to, to make maps of our surroundings. And I spent also a lot of time with people who spend their days looking for lost people uh, to try and get the, the sort of the other, the other side of the, of the picture. And uh, these people tend not to know about the science, but they're quite good at finding people because they they study the patterns, the behavioural patterns, and they listen to people when they find them, who, who, who tell them you know, what happened to them, why they got lost. And it's finding your way is, is an art, I, I, I think, because it has a lot to do with how you relate to your environment. And you have to be a bit creative about using certain cues, certain landmarks, the shape of the, the, shape of the land, or if, if you're in a city remembering important things uh, and just the way a street looks, that kind of thing. So it's difficult to, 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 to look at it entirely scientifically. In fact, if you know, I mean, I know plenty of uh, spatial neuroscientists who are not particularly good at finding their way. So knowing <laughs> about the, the science of this doesn't necessarily help you uh, when you're out in the, in the landscape. Mm. Um, it's, a com- it's a complex uh, endeavour, I think, wayfinding. It's so interesting, isn't it? I, and I guess that it makes sense because we all have those particular emotional attachments, I guess, to landscapes and the way that we, the way that we navigate through places is influenced by the people that we are, I suppose is what you're saying, isn't it? Yes, and, and your confidence uh, levels are very influential in, in, in how you navigate a place. If you're nervous, it makes it difficult to to pick out the right kind of information and, and to retain that information. So the sort of person you, you are, if you're neurotic, you'll probably kind of find it very difficult to navigate in any environment. If you're confident, outgoing, or, or you've grown up using those skills, then you're going to relate to your environment very, very differently. So everyone does it differently, and the, and the, the, the skill set differs dramatically across the population. Mm. So interesting, that notion of confidence as well, isn't it? You know, kind of almost that thing of setting out, you know, looking like you know where you're going. Um, That's right. And, and, and if, you, if you don't have confidence, you're less likely to, to do that, to dive into streets of a city you don't know. You're more likely just to take a taxi, for, for example. But if you have confidence, you're going to do it more. So it's a, it's a sort of self-fulfilling circle really in, mm. in that way which why it's difficult for anxious people to become good navigators because they just don't have the opportunities mm. I remember giving my young son the kind of map of Venice and Venice is a great place to do that with kids because obviously there's no traffic and yeah uh, and just saying right okay you know get us there and mm-hmm. and getting them to to read the map in that way and it's, it feels like there's not not so often that we get to do that no well there aren't many places where you can feel safe in, in that way. Mm. I mean, the flaneurs of, 
of old who used to wander around cities. That that was a, a form of artistic expression in a way. They weren't mm. that interested in in finding their way. I think they were, they were more interested in not finding their way, probably. Yeah. Being lost uh, added to that experience, but not many of us do that no. these days. No, the flaneur and the, the um, psychogeographers more sort of, of today. I mean, it? there are apps that you can download which will help you get yes. lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's sort of come full, full circle, really. Yeah. Yeah, and you write about some of those in your book, and I thought that was completely fascinating. Because I, I personally love the idea of map reading as an art and as, and as a form of reading, actually. So I, w- I was taught to map read as a small child by my father, who loved maps so much that he collected antique ones to hang on the wall. And I, I love maps too, you know, their colours and their sort of useful artistry. And yeah, I'm a bit grumpy about sat-nav, really. It's a sort of matter of personal pride to navigate by paper map. Are you, are you the same? Do you like that art of map? I am the same, Caroline. I prefer to wayfind without a sat-nav, but I'm not a technophobe, so I don't, I don't think there's anything in principle wrong with, with using a sat-nav, and, and I often use it, particularly in a city. Mm. Well, so perhaps I'm being a little fanciful here, but um, reading your work made me think about what an ability to navigate or not uh, and our relationship relationship with others, which is your sort of other big sort of subject, might shape a writing life. And I wondered if you could draw, if it's possible to draw a parallel with uh, navigating the writing of a full-length book when, as a, as a sort of former journalist, you're used to setting a simple course through a piece of freelance journalism or a fairly simple course where you can see your destination from the outset. And I guess that when you're deep in the writing of a book, we, uh, I guess we all have to keep a, a sense of where we are and make sure that... Well, I was going to say make sure that neither you or your reader gets lost, but sometimes it's quite get good to get lost for a while in the writing of a book, isn't it? Because um, you're somewhere you've never been before, I suppose. That's right. I mean, be, So if you're writing about popular science or if you're writing about science and trying to explain it to a general audience, you, I find you end up with far too much information, too much detail, because not being an academic myself, I have to learn about the subject in order to write about it. So I start a book once I finish the research with way too much material and I find it impossible to, to start without a really solid structure. And so, so I do try and map it out and imagine how each chapter will, will link together and within the chapter, how it'll look within a chapter. And I try and have that fairly well laid out. Uh, and then I almost immediately uh, veer from it when I start because I find that one thing it makes it more interesting to go a different direction which I hadn't anticipated so I think it's 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 really useful to to have that structure to have that map but have the possibility also of going outside outside it somehow or following a a road that you didn't think existed but I think one of the first things an editor looks for is is sensible structure so you need to you need to have a structure and the map needs to you need to be able to draw a map of the book once you've finished it but it doesn't have to be the same one that you started off with yes I find. that's that's a very good way of, of talking about it and 
And, and I guess it is slightly different, as you say. I mean, you know, if one was writing a, a novel, for example, I suppose there would be more point in sort of getting lost in that. But of course, there are, there are novelists who plan very carefully, you know, what's going to happen in their books and not just kind of crime novelists where you, you sort of need to know what's, what's going to happen. I'd love to have that conversation, actually, with a novelist uh, mm. on structure, whether it's important to have yeah. that. I think probably the point about your books is you are you're a science communicator, so you are trying to communicate ideas to, 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 to others and sometimes quite complex things. Yes, uh, I suppose it's got to be surprising to, to readers, even, even if you know what you're in for when, you, when you're reading a book. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's helpful for a reader to know sort of where they're going, but they need to be surprised mm. as well. Um, so the writer has to be surprised but the thing that with with non-fiction science writing is that there's always this idea you need to hold people by the hand as, as, as you take them through complex ideas but that can be limiting I think the sort of language that you then end up using to steer people can make it seem very formulaic and take that sort of surprise and spontaneity out of the out of the language and that's something that I, I struggle with. Yeah, I haven't I haven't worked that out yet. But I thought I think we also get something of you in your books, and I like that as well. You're not you're not just sort of delivering as a kind of lecture from high on high. You feel like you're mm-hmm. part of it. And I, th- I think the other thing that I was wondering about, and perhaps this also relates a bit to to fiction, but any type of writing is that I can imagine that um, the knowledge that you have of uh, human psychology and behaviour, that's quite useful to a writer, isn't it? I mean, it could be useful to all kinds of writers. It's really useful, for, exactly, for, for all kinds of writers, fiction writers, just a, a, an awareness of how people behave in their particular situation or in relation to what they've experienced in their, in their past those sort of things. I mean, we, we often, there's this idea that's quite dominant about personality, this idea that pers- if you know someone's personality and their character and their disposition, then you can tell how they might behave in a, in a particular situation. This idea that these traits are, are fairly fixed and, and they shape people's behaviour. But in reality, it, that doesn't seem to be the case. And behaviour is very hard to predict. I mean, one example was when I was doing research for, for Wayfinding, a book about navigation. The way people behave when they find that they're lost and really lost in, in a wilderness situation, however well-trained, well-informed they are about what they should do in that situation, almost invariably they would suffer a, a panic attack, lose the ability to think their way out, out of that situation. So... That's an example, that's a quite extreme example of how the situation, the environmental context entirely shapes your behaviour and your training and your, your personality has very little bearing. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that, that interests me, how, how unpredictable really behaviour is and mm. how surprising, influenced by your environment but also by your social environment, people you're, you're with. There's something quite hopeful about about that as well. I think mm. we're not determined by by our, our traits. Yes, and thinking about um, the power of others, your book, the power of others, peer pressure, 
groupthink and how the people around us shape everything we do. And we discover in this book that our innate socialness as human beings holds huge sway over how we think. How important are other people to writers, do you think? And how does that need for other people square with the writer's instinct to be solitary and to sort of come up with their own ideas or at least a sort of mode of presentations that's really individual and original? I guess most writers say they need both things, but I know I don't really like other people around when I'm writing. It's a really good question. I'm a member of a a library, the London Library in, in London, which is full of writers who go there to write and um, I also sometimes write, write there but talking to people there I've discovered that there are so, people have so many different ways of writing and different needs I mean I have a friend who cannot write by herself she's got to be surrounded by people she needs to hear other people being productive Caroline shaking her head <laughs> and, and um, I'm, I'm with you I that's not really for me, but sometimes, I mean, some people find it very difficult to, to be alone. Daunting, I think. Mm. And they need others. They need to see other people being inspired or being productive in order for that. Well, yeah, again, it's just difficult to, to have a, a, imagine a formula for how best to write a book. And it takes some people a huge amount of time to to write a book and some people I have some colleagues who write in popular science who rattle off a book in a in a year and they're doing 1500 words a day and I never like to hear about that because it makes me feel no. <laughs> incompetent <laughs> don't think any of us do <laughs> yeah so maybe that's it's kind of treating it like an assignment isn't it or maybe even I, I guess if I was writing a journalistic piece then you you just go for it and you, you do just get it down but um, as we were sort of discussing, I think books take more navigating than that. It's, you can't just kind of plough straight through it, or I, I certainly can't. But. There's also the, the audience, your relationship with your, with your readers, or, or who you hope will be your readers. Mm. And I think that can have an effect on how, how you write, imagining who you're writing for. If you're, if you're writing for a paper or, or a magazine, then you're fairly sure of that audience because they, they know who, who buys that paper. And mm. so you're, you're aiming at a particular audience, but for long form, for non-fiction books, unless you're writing a very tight genre, you're not quite sure who's going to be reading your, your books, which can make it a little bit uh, feel that you're, you're, you're in a bit of a vacuum and you need an anchor. And... I think imagining your audience or part of your audience can provide a, an anchor in some ways. Mm. Yes, there's a, that sort of, it's a kind of act of trust that someone else is going to find this interesting other than yourself. Yes, God, you I've hope certainly so. had that. <laughs> now you've, um, you've made, a, as, as we've covered, a specialism of writing about what happens in our own heads and, and why. And, you know, this might suggest that you don't need to go very far to research your writing, but actually I know you've travelled a great deal and I know some of that's been on journalistic assignments in the past, including to the Middle East, but tell us something about how travelling to different places has informed your writing. I think people are very similar in some ways. We have similar psychology, but people have 
respond very differently to their setting and the way they behave and their outlook on on the world varies hugely I find and it has a lot to do with how people fit into to where they are so for this for, for my book on wayfinding I, I was talking to neuroscientists in in their labs in 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 London in University College London who spend their time in a very highly focused uh, experimental setting studying rats with electrodes in their hippocampi and then I went to Canada North America to talk to people who work in these huge landscapes uh, studying people who who get lost in 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 that setting or actually finding people who are lost and so they have a completely different view of of the world so they're talking about roughly the same thing what orientates people and what happens when they become disorientated but they're seeing it in in very different different ways so i think from for my area of science writing it's important to meet people in in their settings because their view of the world is profoundly influenced by by where they are and what they've seen in their experience um even though they might share you know the majority of their genetic makeup and the psychology is is the same mm-hmm. i think it's it's difficult just to talk to someone to work out who they are you sort of need to observe them and the best way to do that is to go to where they where they live where they're comfortable Yes, well, it, it it makes so much sense, and you, I mean, I guess this is the most true for your book, Wayfinding. But I, I guess one could say that it's looking at the way that people behave. It's a such an important constituent, and I know um, that in your latest book, you're looking at uh, fans and sort of mm-hmm. fandom, aren't you? And why people become fans of whatever they're fans of. Yeah. So that that again, it, this is about how people's interaction with their surroundings uh, shapes their behavior but in this case it's their social surroundings because that book is is mainly about how people behave within their fan group fandoms so i was looking i mean this is a great place to be for for part of i had a chapter in that book on jane austen fans <laughs> and uh this is jane austen country we're in hampshire that she was born a few miles away from here so this is one thing I could do during the pandemic lockdown where we couldn't travel very much but I could get out to meet Jane Austen followers there's plenty of them around here talk to them about why they love her literature and why they dress up in regency costumes and get together for picnics and <laughs> this kind of thing so I was able to really study these people in their in their setting, in their natural settings. And I met all kinds of people doing this research for, for fans, from Jane Austen to members of the Richard III Society who are convinced that Richard III has oh, yes, been very maligned. Oh, you know, yes, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, Harry Potter, David Bowie, uh, all, all the traditional sort of celebrity fandoms. And looking at the social psychology of that was just really really interesting mm. and just seeing how people benefit from finding that they're not actually the only person who thinks this way about Taylor Swift. <laughs> that there's actually 
you know, when, when they link up with, with other people, that, that kind of sharing of passions has an incredible effect on, on people. And the sort of meaning that it can give to people is really fascinating. That is fascinating. And, it, and it's, a, it's a distinct thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've, I've written about Jane Austen. One of my books is about Jane Austen. And so I, I would describe yeah. myself as a, <laughs> you know, I've been to Steventon when she was born just up the road and Chawton. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I really, really do draw the line at dressing up in Regency costume. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's strange how you, yes, a, a sort of a real abiding interest is, is distinct from what you're talking about, I think, isn't it? There, there are different levels, of, there are different yes. intensities aren't there, of, <laughs> yeah. of, of fandom. But, I mean, people, when I talk to them about the fact that I was writing about Jane Austen fans, they often presume that they would be women in their 60s or, or 70s. But the people that I was talking to were mainly in their early, early 20s, mm-hmm. mainly women um, in their early 20s. And so they have a very modern take on, on Jane Austen. And they see her as a sort of radical revolutionary in some ways. And they use some of that in in, in their own lives. So mm. uh, Jane Austen, I think, has been reinterpreted over and over. That's so interesting. Yeah, because I, 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 I like those radical readings. I think they're really interesting. Anyway, we, we digress slightly. <laughs> now, in my introduction, I mentioned your adventure-craving forebear, Viscount Milton, who in 1862, set out to travel across what is uh, now Western Canada, partly to explore the possibilities of a usable land route through the Rockies. So in Way Out West on the Trail of an Errant Ancestor, you describe your own journey west from Winnipeg and his footsteps. So it's, it's quite a different book from those that follow. Did it any in any way set the tone for what you've subsequently written? So that was my first book. It was 20 years ago. It was before I thought of myself as a writer of books because I was just setting out trying to be one and I was still a full-time journalist at at that time but I think it was more to do with I was interested in this particular ancestor because he was an eccentric but he also grew up in a family that was very traditional and he was clearly a, a black sheep and he suffered from epilepsy and he was he was an outcast but he went out and he did this journey and he wrote a book about it and he sort of became a, a success really through his own imagination. I mean, he, this is what he decided he wanted to do, get well away from his family, but achieve something as well. And his journey was nothing like he expected. Uh, he was travelling across the Canadian prairies before it had been settled by, by Europeans and he ended up spending a winter with a group of Cree Indians and he learnt a lot from that. It profoundly changed his, his view of the world. So I think that it was that that drew me. And there's a lot of looking at his behaviour, the sort of psychology of that and coming out of this very straight-laced family and finding his own way. So I, I think, although it's difficult to really make that link at the time to what came after for me, looking back, that's what really drew me in. And after mm. that, human behaviour was... You know, eternally fascinating. <laughs> yeah, he's an extraordinary character. I loved reading about him. So what are the preoccupations, would you say, that run through all of your work? I think I see myself as an observer, really, because I'm not an academic scientist. Uh, I spend my time learning from 
psychologists and behavioural scientists. And I really just observe what they do and then observe what other people do and with that knowledge try and make some sense of how people behave in the world. And so uh, my main preoccupation is probably as, as, a, as an observer and tr trying to get better at that, honing that, the art of really looking for certain things in someone's behaviour or picking up their use of language and just taking your, yourself out of, the, out of the mix as far as you can. Uh, I find that fascinating. So that's, uh, that's the sort of the front end, the research side. As a popular science writer, there's always the thing about trying to make difficult science easy to understand. And I spent quite a lot of time trying to work out what's going on for myself. And then ultimately, the reason I'm in, in the game, I think, is, is the writing side, trying to write it all down, getting it across in a way that is enjoyable for people to to read and that I just enjoy the craft of of writing knowing that this is something that you get better at the more you do the harder you work at it and that's what I absolutely love really that last third of the operation of the book <laughs> when you're actually sitting down making sense of everything and yeah helping other people navigate it I suppose yeah as well. that's that's right I haven't thought of it like that but that's that's how it is Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Caroline. That was Michael Bond in conversation with Carolyn Sanderson. You can find out more about Michael on his website at www.michaelbond.co.uk. And that concludes episode 389, which was recorded by Carolyn Sanderson and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 390... Penny Boxall seeks inspiration at Lawrence Stern's Shandy Hall, and Jonathan Edwards introduces the poet W.H. Davis. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk Thanks for listening.